When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 43. We're recording on Friday, March 7th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. Jeff, good morning. I've been um, scanning the horizon for spring. Any uh, signs? Like, it's like a widow's walk for this coming season. And the vegetable cart that lives next to our house popped up today. And I think Ooh. I think we're here. Uh, I had a firm talking to with weather. I think mm-hmm. we've come to an understanding. Very good. Um, so you can all thank me later for that. Well, thank you for that. I spent, we're starting to see signs of spring here in Richmond already. Mm -hmm. Um, And not to rub it in, but I spent Saturday afternoon stretched out on our front stoop in the sun like a cat with a book, (laughs) (laughs) which is how I know that spring is coming. That and that my husband is tromping around our backyard as we speak, spreading mole repellent. (laughs) Do you have a mole problem? We do. Wow. Believe it or not, the moles are not afraid of the basset hound. Mm. Well, so you and the NSA. That's my glamorous life. Um, let's do some follow-up. Uh, we had some readers email with some interesting stuff about stories we've talked about recently. Ravina emailed and said, I don't know, I don't think it was last week, maybe. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yeah, a while we, back. We a while back, this. the story about the Times ran about publishers accelerating their publishing timelines to assuage and satisfy, quote-unquote, impatient readers. And she emailed saying, I wanted to scream at the podcast and saying, Romance has been doing this forever. And Ravina is absolutely correct. She really, really is. Um, Romance does it consistently. And I've learned that just in the last couple of years that I've been reading Romance. Uh, My favorite writer, Sarah McLean, does a new book every six months in her series. And that is not fast enough for me. (laughs) I finish the one and I'm like, oh, I have to wait until like June for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tiffany Rice is a good example, but I think it's also, uh, they're doing it pretty much, everybody is putting out a couple books a year in their series um, in romance rather than that spread out years in between thing. Good call, Ravina. Yeah, you could do worse than to guess the future of publishing by looking at what romance is doing. I True. mean, I mean, they not everything is going to turn out that way, but they do seem to like be a little ahead of the curve for reasons I don't quite understand. Probably because since it has been a I don't know if this is the right term, sort of a ghettoized genre. They've been free in a way mm-hmm. to do things that uh, in a little differently than yeah, the, the big the it's big It's also uh, one of the recession-proof genres. Um, when, you know, a couple of years back when the U.S. economy was really uh, hitting a terrible point, romance sales were one of the only genres to actually go up. Um, it's, you know, it's great and escapist. And uh, it is not a serious, dark thing to have to read about, you know, like a, a big piece of literary fiction that is depressing when the state of the world is already mm-hmm. depressing. Um, but yeah, romance readers were also one of the first big communities of genre readers to jump on board with e-reading. 
for and, and lower prices right. too with ebooks as well. Um, so thank you, Ravina. That's an excellent point, and uh, thanks for contributing to the show. Benjamin Perry, uh, who works for Blank Fiction Magazine, had a, had a point about the Vita stats we talked about last week, and he said, you know, he was wondering if the better ratio for smaller mags might, in some small measure, be an effect of blind submissions in which the editors are reading cold pitches without knowing who the na- what the names of the people are. Hmm, maybe. So I don't know. I think it's an interesting wrinkle um, because the bigger the publication, the less likely they are to take blind submissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might take cold pitches, but those aren't blind. Um, so I think that's a really good point. I think maybe, you know, there's two possible effects if this is true. Let's say, for example, let's just say as a possibility that it is true, that blind submissions help. Well, there could be two reasons for that. The first would be that you get rid of biases on the editor's part, unconscious ones, right? Mm-hmm. Like not even They're not even saying we just want dudes. They just, there's some bias that gets built in when you know the gender. And the other one might be that um, people who don't feel comfortable submitting might feel more comfortable submitting if they know it's a blind submission. Yeah. So they're more willing to try. I would love to read a, like a nice essay by the editors of one of uh, the literary magazines that's either just been consistently doing a good job with gender parity or that's had to make a concerted effort to improve what they've done with it. Um, the Paris Review made big jumps between 2012 and 2013 in how they um, presented work by women and work by men. And it it had to be very conscious and intentional. And I'd love to hear more about how they did that. I think blind submissions would be a really interesting experiment. Um, in a lot of the cases, it's reader, it's uh, editors just having to seek out women to get them to um, actually submit work. Um, one of the excuses that's been made by publications that do a bad job with gender parity is, well, more men submit, uh, mm-hmm. which might be true statistically, um, but there's a lot, there are a lot of, you know, cultural forces at work there in men feeling more confident submitting their work than, uh, than women do. And so editors have had to go out and ask women to submit. Uh, Roxane Gay has been tweeting um, really interesting and smart commentary about the value of doing that or of um, putting in your call for submissions. We are specifically looking for work by women or for work by people of color um, to encourage them and let them know that this is a place that wants to see what you have to say, even if you're, you know, not feeling totally confident in it. Uh, it this is a super interesting idea. Um, and if you have any thoughts on any of the things that we ever talk about on the show, like Ravina and Benjamin Perry, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Thanks so much guys. So let's do our first sponsor. Uh, we want to thank audible for its support of the book Riot podcast audible, as you should know, if you don't, and if you don't, you're about to find out, is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. Uh, and we have a special offer exclusively for you guys coming right up. Audible has more than 150,000 titles in almost every genre. I don't know what that means. I don't know what they're leaving out. But, um, you know, if, if you've heard of it, they've got it, I'm guessing. Uh, if you want to listen to a book, Audible has it. Basically, that's the way it goes. If it's an audiobook that's available, Audible's going to have it. You can listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere. You know, audiobooks have seen phenomenal growth over the last year, especially. Um, and it's because we all have iPhones and iPads and PCs and Kindles um, and Nooks and Kobo readers and Google Nexus Play Galaxy 5S Megapads or whatever. Just keep um, going. I was... I, yeah, I just how many can I name in a row? Uh, you know, <laughs> shrimp, popcorn. Um, <laughs> so if you've got something that can play audiobooks, Audible supports your device. More than 500 devices. 
Uh, I hope you don't have that many. If you do, you should you should have a garage sale. Uh, and here's the best part. So Audible is offering Book, like, book Riot podcast listeners a free audiobook along with a 30-day trial. So you go to audiblepodcast.com, audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot to take advantage of this special offer. And by doing so, you get a chance to check out Audible and audiobooks, which if you haven't, you should. It's the way of the future, or at least part of the future. And you can tell them that you like us and you like them and you'll be supporting the show. Um, they also like, and I think it's a great idea to give an audiobook recommendation. So Rebecca, do you have, do you have something? I do. Oh, what I've, do you have? I've been listening to, um, this is like the most in Rebecca's wheelhouse audiobook ever, maybe, uh, American Savage by Dan Savage, mm -hmm. who, uh, has, is a well-known uh, columnist. He writes a uh, sex and relationship love advice column he has for the last 20 years. Uh, he's also an equal rights activist and the founder of the, it gets better movement. Movement uh, that you know swept the internet and YouTube a couple of years ago, geared toward um, LGBT teens. Uh, it is about a little bit of everything, sort of all of the topics that Savage has spent the last 20 years thinking about and writing about um, in his you know, contrarian and very accessible voice. Um, he curses, he reads the book himself. It's a really confident, funny delivery. Um, and he's, you know, he's talking about things like, is there ever a time when it's okay to cheat on your spouse or even when that's the right thing to do? What about the church and uh, sexuality and what the church says about um, what people do in their bedrooms? What about the state of sex education in the country? And for uh, someone who is a super hippie uh, liberal and who likes thinking about issues of uh, sex and society, it's kind of perfect. Uh, I don't agree with everything he says. I don't think you're ever going to come across any advice columnist that you agree with everything they say. Um, but he's just so uh, there's just so much fun and thought and, and logic to the arguments that he makes that it's interesting to kind of go down those thought experiments and, and see, you know, what he's saying or what the perspective is that I hadn't considered before. Um, it's definitely not one to listen to with your kids in the car, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right in my wheelhouse, uh, the kind of perspective that I, I like to see coming to the way that we talk about an issue that affects everyone's life, but that we don't talk about uh, much very openly. Openly. So that's, that is my recommendation for the week. All right, great. So thanks to Audible for sponsoring the show. That Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash bookwright for the free trial. Um, so the first story I guess we'll talk about is the most popular, Scribd, which is one of the new ebook subscription services. They released a nice little piece in Parade, which is, you know, it's mostly promotional, but I can't, I can't help looking at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, um, talking about which books in their catalog of uh, ebook subscription service are most popular in each state of the 50 United States for you international listeners in case you've forgotten. Um, <laughs> I, this is a completely baffling list. It is totally baffling. I, I don't even know what to say about it because so, it, it, there's no... This thing really made me long for Methodology Corner. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the important caveats are Scribd doesn't have everything, of course. Right. They have 300,000 titles. Which ain't bad. Not bad at all. there's a lot more books out there. So the selection, um, the available pool of titles is limited. And so that certainly does something to the numbers. We have no, we have no idea what. Right. But the correlation between what's most popular in each state and the state itself... I, 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 don't I cannot discern anything. 
So Alaska, the most common one. <laughs> this is a great one to start is with. Yeah. Ben and Jerry's homemade ice cream and dessert book. Which okay, if you so would have asked live in me, yeah, cold right. And you like cold food? I mean, there's I I don't think there's really any correlation to be drawn. This is just here is interesting information. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of I books mean, I haven't heard of, to be yeah, honest. I mean, I looked at our home state of Kansas and it's, mm. uh, the high Lord, the black magician trilogy by Trudy Canavan, Canavan. I'm yeah. not sure. My current state of New York is the bedwetter by Sarah Silverman. <laughs> um, uh, Virginia is dear Carrie, my life with Carrie Grant by Diane Cannon. So at so least we're classing weird. the joint up a little bit. That's an, that's such an odd pick. Um, ah, Tennessee. I hope they serve beer in hell by Tucker Max. <laughs> Let's hope there's no correlation. Texas, there. The Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. Oh, uh, we got Wisconsin is Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. Oh, and Illinois is American Gods by Neil Gaiman. So Big Neil shows up twice. No surprise there that if somebody's going to, it's him. Yeah. Um, uh, Montana, The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein. Minnesota, Labor Day by Joyce Maynard. Like the the thing that I really want to know, or the things I really want to know about this list, is how many users do they have per yeah. state, and how many people does it take to make a title the most That's popular what I was title? Say. If we could know one state, stat, like, it would be how many is, people in Maryland have to read Beautiful yeah, Ruins like, for it to have been the top one. Is the Bedwetter the most popular because four people are reading it in New York and there are just so many other titles that it's just one person per title spread out across the rest of the selection? Or is it the most popular because 400 or 4,000 New York readers are reading it? Um, I know I'm suspicious when things like this get uh, published and then there are no numbers attached because yeah. it makes me think it's something like it It only took four readers to be the most popular thing. If there were um, big numbers, they would share them. So I would I, like to see now this list got that, me thinking about other sort of similar lists I'd like to see. In mm. one would be the New York Times bestseller list broken out by state. Oh, that would be interesting. Like, how much variation is there really? Like, I've never really thought about it before. I would imagine there should there would be regional mm -hmm. differences and state by state differences if only for political climate or, demographic yeah, reasons well, you know, alone i mean amazon already does once a year the most literary states or the most well read states or whatever they call yeah. it where it, the mechanism for determining well readness is states that order the most books from amazon but you know that they have that data and it would be super interesting to see like you know, Washington are the most well-read cities. Like Washington, D.C. is consistently in the top three mm -hmm. or five. What are the five most popular books ordered there versus the five most popular ordered like in Seattle or in Raleigh, North Carolina or Atlanta? Yeah. I mean, this list, we'll put it in the show notes. You can always find the show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. And this is going to be episode 43. Just scroll down there if you're listening um, well after the fact and a binge listen to the show. Uh, if you are subscribed to Scribd, which is kind of a hard sentence to say, I just realized. <laughs> this might be, it's kind of a good list to see what's available there. You know, these are at least multiple people, mm -hmm. I would assume, <laughs> in yeah. each state are reading these. Right, um, the, and a lot of these I haven't heard of, so it, it's a good list for a look for an idea to yeah, read the, with your Yeah, the Idaho favorite is uh, The Lost Duke of Wyndham by Julia Quinn, who's a great romance writer that I've just recently 
discovered. Um, and these services, you know, we talk about Scribd, we talked about Oyster. Um, I think they're just really fantastic, especially for trying out new stuff uh, and not feeling the risk. So you've never read a romance novel before and you're not sure if you're going to like it or not, but you, you just pay your eight ninety nine a month to Scribd and you can try this one out. Um, and if you don't like it, you just move on to something else in there with 300,000, there's bound to be, you know, something you can find and enjoy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about other states behaving weirdly. Oh, um, South Carolina, man. Bad job, South Carolina. The Super bad South job. South Carolina House of Representatives has withdrawn $52,000 from the College of Charleston for including Allison Bechdel's celebrated memoir, Fun Home, in its summer reading program. I'm reading from an article on Boing Boing right now, which will also be in the show notes. Um, it tells Bechdel's story of growing up. Is that right, Bechdel? Bechdel, Bechdel. yeah. Bechdel. This, is, it's a, this is a great book. Great, Yeah, it's a really awesome graphic novel, if you're into graphic novels or aren't. Um, it's great. And uh, Representative Gary Smith said that the book didn't merit scholarly consideration because it's gras- it graphically shows lesbian acts. And he led the campaign to withdraw the funds. College of Charleston gets at least some of its funding from the state. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, th- we don't like uh, showing lesbians doing lesbian stuff. So we're going to yank, we're going to take our ball home, go home. Yep. And it's important to note the $52,000 that they've withdrawn is the cost of the entire summer reading program. Well, you know, it's good because as we all know, South Carolina doesn't have any lesbians. So right. no one there will at all benefit. <laughs> and nor, nor, they don't have any, but they don't know any lesbians either. <laughs> And right, we'll never naturally. have any in the future. So, I mean, it makes sense that you pulled it. I, I, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I just can't. I was, just, I was it, trying it to just, do it. I just can't with this. There's there's such an interesting story to tell in this book because Bechdel is discovering her own sexual identity and figuring out how to come out at the same time that she's realizing that her father is a closeted gay man um, and that her mother is just ignoring his affairs. Um, so it's uh, sort of dueling stories of dealing with sexual identity, and um, it's a it's a terrific graphic memoir. Um, graphic as in like you know drawn, not, right? Not like uh, well, my memory is is that the graphic. sexual stuff is not that graphic. It's not like there's. I don't think there's not any, that that would be reason to withdrawing it anyway, but just I don't for remember what it's worth. any drawn nudity. Like I think there are some panels where Bechdel is in bed with another woman. Um, so drawn panels of two women in bed together, maybe somebody in their underwear. There might be nudity that I don't remember, but um, I don't know. I'm pretty hard to shock. and Nothing in this mm-hmm. shocked me. Uh, the it, This is just a sad, sad story. And this is not the first time that South Carolina has had something like this happen. Um, several years ago, Ann Patchett's book, Truth and Beauty, which is about her friendship uh, with another writer named Lucy Greeley, um, was assigned by Clemson University and parents and local legislators um, protested there. I don't know if they tr- if they withdrew funds, but it resulted in uh, Patchett going to the university and giving a big speech about the value of reading things, even if people tell you that those things are dangerous. And the objections to that book were even uh, more ridiculous than the objections to this one, because that book is just about two women who are close friends and uh, mm-hmm. who love each other very dearly. And there were like imagined lesbian references <laughs> <laughs> there there's a there are a couple of great essays about it in Patchett's new book this is the story of a happy marriage if that's something that you are interested in learning more about but man come on south carolina apparently the ultimate decision will be made on march 10th so there's still some hope that um 
non-bigoted minds will prevail. Uh, Bechdel herself visited the campus last fall, and there was some noise around that visit. And I wonder if that's what precipitated this um, jerk. Wait, and yeah, this jerk is saying that he's speaking on behalf of parents who have religious convictions. Uh, and first of all, if your kid is old enough to be in college, they're an adult. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. except in very, you know, special circumstances, people who go off to college are 18 years old and are adults and their parents can't legally get information from their teachers about how they're doing in school, right? Like, if your students' parents email you, there are privacy uh, policies that prevent you from talking to parents about how the students are doing, right? Unless the students consent. Yeah, and you know what? You can take your religious convictions and go home when it comes to also, education. Right, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, like, you're free to believe whatever you want, but when it comes to withdrawing funding from universities that are in the business of educating, you let them make the decision. And if your particular student has a religious problem with a book, they can deal with it by themselves. Right. And this is an important part of a college education as well as learning to encounter information that either makes you uncomfortable in some way or that you disagree with um, or that you actively believe against and uh, making sense of it and learning how to argue against it more effectively if that's a thing that can be done or at least just learning how to tolerate the fact that there is information and art in the world uh, that you don't like. Uh, but that is, a, I think that's a huge part of of education is being uh, forced to come up against ideas that either you've never encountered before or that you might not agree with and learning to cope with that because that's also a large part of reality. That's that's very generous of you. This is just <laughs> idiocy. I'm not, you know what, this is just someone being a jerk and they're going to be in the dustbin of history and we just got to wait them out. So And? And if, what? And you can donate oh, to yeah, right. this. This is, I think this is great. Uh, we'll drop both links in the show notes. And Bechdel makes an interesting and smart statement, um, as expected, about this problem. But you can donate to the College of Charleston's um, program. It's called the College Reads at giving.cofc.edu slash donate. If you would like to uh, help them raise back some of these $52,000 that they need to run their summer reading program uh, and support educators being able to do what educators are supposed to do. Um, in the ongoing struggle to figure out how the future of finding out about books, buying books, reading about books, 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 books. <laughs> um, you know, this is something you and I are especially interested in. We've kind of made it one of the themes of the show is tracking these new uh, initiatives. Mm -hmm. um, and a new one is out this week called offtheshelf.com. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, I can't remember, is this SNS? Who is this? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, this is now. Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster. It's a new website. It's offtheshelf.com, and it's devoted to backlist titles. And it Which... looks like about every day they feature a new backlist book. Mm -hmm. uh, that which actually is a contradiction in terms, but a different <laughs> backlist book. Um, and, you know, have someone write about why you might be interested in reading it. And you can sign up. And as you read them, if you're logged in, you can just add it to your shelf and kind of keep an ongoing list of things you're interested in. Um, it's pretty simple, I have to say. It mm -hmm. looks good. It works. Um, what do you think about this? I think it's pretty simple. It yeah. looks good. You, I'll, it just, works. you can't repeat myself back to me. That's that's not how this works. Um, it works, but I don't know that it does a thing that's necessary. Mm -hmm. Like we talk a lot about publishers solving the wrong problems, and um, you know, 
I could not tell you the last time that a reader told me that they have trouble finding books to read. Um, the, the problem for, you know, hardcore readers tends to be more of how do you narrow it down? Um, what do you read next out of your huge list of possibilities? Um, I understand why Simon & Schuster is trying this. I understand why publishers are trying things like this. They've realized that there's value in online content about books. Um, the building of Off the Shelf indicates that they've realized that readers are not just reading new releases. And in fact, most readers are not reading new releases. Like, That's right. you know, the bulk of the money made in books every year is from backlist is mm -hmm. from things that weren't brand new that year. So there's real value in talking about not so new books online and providing readers with information about them. But I just don't know that it's, it's basically a blog. It does look nice, but I just don't know that a blog that's written by, um, a bunch of, publishing employees <laughs> is going to be the thing that solves the problem for readers. It, and kudos to Simon and Schuster because they haven't limited this content to just Simon and Schuster That's right. titles. Exactly yeah, they're yep. they're going to talk about all kinds of books. Um, the press release that I read said that, you know, all the content will be written by Simon and Schuster employees. I hope they're getting paid extra for writing it um, to write about mm. books that they love, great backlist that they love. So coming from that place of passion is awesome, but I don't know that this solves a problem that readers actually have. It's more like publishers solving or trying to solve the problem of showing readers more old books that they can buy, which who yeah. has who has trouble finding them? I don't know. I mean, I think people might have trouble finding books, but the people that have trouble finding books aren't the kind that are ever going to hear about off the shelf or sign up for it or use it on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good idea. I think trying to find some way um, to talk about books that aren't just new is a good idea. Uh, it's one of the reasons we started this little website we run called bookriot.com, um, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, that, you know, readers talk about all different kinds of things in any given week or month. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say, I, I've never thought about this, but what percentage of the books we talk about on the site are front list or backlist? I, I think it's enormously backlist um, on the whole, depending on how you count. Um, yeah. But at any rate, I don't know. This it feels a little small. Like this, you can search, but there aren't that many titles. Things aren't tagged by genre mm -hmm. or anything or author. And um, here's my real beef: I don't need to build a shelf anywhere else. I, I was just gonna say that. <laughs> This needs to go away. Publisher created content sites that are geared towards getting readers to put books on shelves like that. It needs to go away. Um, if you want a shelf to catalog your online reading, there are already some very good, robust options online. Mm -hmm. And I would dare say that most of the people who want that have already found those things and are building them out. And once you have one, you don't need multiples. You don't need more than one catalog of your reading and yeah. I just, I don't, I, no, no. Unless it does something different. Like, I was thinking about this too, and I knew we were going to talk about this on the show. It's like, almost like I was thinking about like social networking sites, right? If you're mm -hmm. going to, if I'm going to log in and have accounts on multiple things, they need to do radically different things. Like my right. Facebook, Facebook does a radically different thing than Twitter, which is a radically different thing than Tumblr, mm -hmm. which is a radically different thing than Pinterest. And so mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I get it. That's why I should sign up for all these. What I've seen so far, at least... Um, and you know, other, if, if you use multiple of these book cataloging platforms and you have a, a you can explain why, um, let us know. We'd like to hear that podcast at bookwrite.com. But these all sort of do the same thing, which is right. get you a whole big list of books, which 
I'm not sure there's any, I mean, I, should we say the GR word? I mean, yeah, say it. why not have Goodreads integration here? Mm -hmm. Like if you're really interested in getting people to get these books onto their to be read piles or onto their social networks, that's what you should do. Simon and Schuster might be wanting to build their own sort of network and get data and things like that, which I understand. Um, but if you're going to do that, I think you need to do something more than just a shelf with you have um, eight backlist titles. On yeah, it. I think you're right there. It needs to be new and different and offer some kind of additional service and incentive to make this more appealing than just using Goodreads. And, and I wonder if some of it has to do with fear of Amazon. You know, publishers have this really torn uh, sort of love-hate relationship with Amazon because most of the books they sell are sold by Amazon or a significant chunk of them. But they also see problems mm -hmm. with Amazon. And publishers are also really afraid of appearing to favor Amazon um, against, say, independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. um, which it's worth noting, as much as we love them, only make up 6% of the book business. So to, yep. to make your business decisions because you're afraid of upsetting 6% of the people is problematic in itself. But um, publishers have, I mean, we've, we hear it all the time that publishers see real value in just knowing how many people have put a book on a shelf on Goodreads because they've taken some kind of intentional action mm -hmm. around it. And the more book or the more shelves that a book ends up on, the more likely it is to be surfaced for other readers for discovery in Goodreads. So that sort of integration would make sense here because then you have a pool of 25 million people who might be able to be exposed to it versus you're starting from scratch off the shelf um, with a new pool, starting right. from zero, trying to build a new pool of readers. Plus, it just feels it, this is an old concept mm -hmm. now. Like, um, it seems to me that some publishers are maybe wishing that they had seen the value in Goodreads and bought it before right. Amazon uh, made that smart decision. And now that they can't acquire Goodreads and all of its tasty uh, data about readers. They're trying to find a way to, uh, to get that data themselves, but they can't come up with anything new. Well, yeah. Or, <laughs> I mean, I could see a version of this and maybe they're going to iterate. I don't know. Maybe this is just getting it out there and started and getting some earlier adopters signed up. I, I don't know. But if you're going to compete with Goodreads, go compete with them. Right. I mean, there are things that are not awesome about Goodreads for sure. Like the UI isn't great. Um, they're, they have done a, a terrible job, I would say, um, in policing user behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, you could, you could start, you could use them as sort of your, you, you know, you could be the Facebook to Goodreads is MySpace. Yeah. Right? You can disrupt Goodreads instead yeah, of just copying. But yeah. this isn't, this isn't it. And no. it's not even close to it. Um, I did sign up for this because, you know, I can put it in my RSS feed and I'll see a new book. And if it's a title I'm interested in, I might click on it, but I'm not adding it to my shelf. Yeah. Uh, it's only a small little blip of data in the flood that I follow. And at least it's not called something, at yeah, least the it's name got, of it's It doesn't not have an embarrassing name, which we give it credit for. And it looks good and it works. And the writing is good. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the you, can't count are, on, you can count on publishing people to do good writing right, about yeah, books. Which least. is another way you can compete with Goodreads, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and the books they've picked are interesting, a, a mix of things I've heard of and read and never heard of. So that's, you know, I guess what you're kind of expecting. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's offtheshelf.com. I'm going to pay attention to that because as, with all of these things, um, it's not so much what it is right now, but what they're going to do with it that becomes interesting. As yeah, well. and I guess I'm curious for our listeners as well, after you have a chance to take a look at this, 
if you want to let us know what are the things that you yeah. wish publishers were doing or that you wish existed in book online content, you know, we might be interested in solving that problem. We might just be interested in hearing about, um, about what they are, but more, the more conversation that, uh, real readers, just normal people who care about books can have about the way that we want the internet to work for books mm -hmm. and also the things that we don't want the internet to do for books because we have them already, I think is useful and interesting. And, um, uh, maybe at some point publishers will start paying, <laughs> paying some attention to it. Yeah. Um, so let's see, let's move on to our next story here. Um, Actually, this might be a good this might be a good place to switch over to the Anne Rice um, ah, yes. for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, so Anne Rice is signing a petition which is calling on Amazon to remove anonymity from its reviewers in order to prevent the bullying and harassment. Those are in quotes. Mm -hmm. It says it's rife on the site. This is from a, a story on the Guardian. So this is you know kind of like I was saying about Goodreads. This is one place you could compete with Amazon and Goodreads. I think is if you could create a, a culture that didn't have some of the stuff that goes on here. Now, uh, let me let me be clear. I don't I don't read a lot of Amazon reviews. I'm not an active participator in the Goodreads community, so I don't have uh, an informed take on this, except that I do read them sometimes. And you read the Amazon reviews of a book on Amazon, and it can be distasteful. I'll, I'll leave it there. It can mm -hmm. be a value detract uh, from the Amazon service. And there's been some notable flare-ups of it not going cool for people at all. Um, I'm not sure this is the way to go. Uh, what do you think about removing anonymity? How, how, do you, how do you come across on this? You know, I think there are a lot of dimensions to talk about here. Um, my values about online community is that if you're if what you're building is a community, and I know this is a thing that you and I agree on, if you're building a right. community, people know who they're talking to, and they know people's real names. Um, we encourage that. We don't allow anonymous comments at Book Riot. You have to be signed up through a thing, but you can use a pseudonym. We encourage people to participate um, with their real identities because we see value in that. I don't think that what Amazon is building is a community. Right. Um, I'm not even product... sure Goodreads is a community either. I mean, there are communities within Goodreads, but the mm -hmm. whole thing is at one big community. Yeah, I don't think that Goodreads started out with the intention of being a community, but it became one. Yeah, and it was a tool, right? I mean, right. that's an important distinction, I think, about Goodreads, that it was uh, a technology more than a community, and a yeah, community sort and, of happened anyway. And that's, I think, a source of some of the problems that they've had, as you've mentioned just now, and as we've talked about on the show previously, with um, now they're having to sort of go back and retrofit community behavior oh, standards so hard to do. onto um, these 25 million users and the bajillions of reviews that they've already written and what is and is not acceptable um, to discuss in a review or the, the ways that you can talk about an author and the ways that you can't talk about an author. Um, it's sort of like it was an unexpected community and so they didn't start out with community standards. Amazon's just talking about this. These are product reviews, pure and simple. And uh, existing data shows that like 30% of all online product reviews are fake anyway. So it's um, it, we can question the value of Amazon reviews and how much they matter to start. Um, how much do how much do readers trust them? How much do readers turn to them to help them decide whether they're going to buy a book or not? Um, that's the first piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's there's no question, as you said, that some of the things that are written in Amazon reviews are distasteful. I think bottom line, you know, if it's libelous or abusive or 
I mean, if it's libelous or abusive or you're like making statements or claims that can. You know, it's actionable, like legally right, actionable, right, exactly. right? That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's actionable, um, Amazon if it's just certainly, not nice. I mean, that's right. The, yeah. Amazon has mean. ways to, uh, right. If, if it's actually actionable, Amazon has ways to identify who those people are behind the anonymous, um, threads and to make them go away. They can exercise that kind of control. But if we're just talking about trolling and people being mean online, like welcome to the internet and rice, it's full of jerks. I, I was going to say, you know, like, like I block people on Twitter every day for saying jerky things or Facebook, which not, yeah. I mean, is as close to non-anonymous as we really have online. Still, mm -hmm. they do bad stuff. Now, I it don't know if it's as bad as, yeah. It, I don't know. It's amazing to me the things that people will say on Facebook with their real names and mm -hmm. faces attached. Yeah. And so I don't know if that's going to go away. I mean, I think there might be a core truth here, which is, Amazon was asleep at the wheel in figuring out the reviews, like mm -hmm. how their attitude towards them. Because I think the horse is a little bit out of the barn, both maybe for Goodreads and for Amazon. Oh, totally. Which they'd have to throw so many moderating and community manager resources at that that I'm not sure. It's not in Amazon's DNA, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at their, just if you look at their social media presence, I think is sometimes a good um I don't know. It's sort of a tip of the iceberg to how a company thinks about how it interacts with its customers. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, they have some, but it's not robust. It's not awesome. It's not um, particularly um, extroverted uh, to to use kind of a weird term for it. But so, you know, this is some, I think they would like to leave people to themselves. I think, I think that's what they'd like to do. Yeah, I think so too. And, and I think also, you know, most reasonable human beings. If you go to read a review of an Anne Rice book on Amazon and what you see are a bunch of vitriolic just insults of right. the author, um, you know that that's trolling. Like you can, most people can sniff a troll out online. It's pretty obvious that well, that's what sure, people are doing. Well, sure, but then you also, it crowds out the, you know, how do you does, know what's a reasonable yeah, review? It does, does it... crowd out the good stuff, but then also you're on a slippery slope of uh, what if they just don't like the cover design? Are they allowed yep. to say a, one star for that? Like this is a, another thing that authors complain about on Facebook and, or sorry, on Goodreads and Amazon is, you know, um, people give my book one star reviews for things that have nothing to do with the actual the price content or something like of that, the book. Yeah. Right. Like this book was good, but it shouldn't have been seven ninety nine one one star. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Which How I, do you... I'm sympathetic to I, the, the author's position, and I'm sympathetic to the reader's position there. Like, the author often doesn't have control over the price or the cover design, mm -hmm. um, and yet it's they have the most skin in the game. So yeah, to be but... critiqued about something they don't, have, they don't have control over seems unfair to them, and it might be. But you know mm -hmm. what? Tough luck. That's I mean, that's right. And there's really no way to police that. Like, you can say to readers, um, you know you may not comment about a book's price in a review in the same way that Goodreads has now said you, you may not comment about authors like personal behavior right. in book reviews, but that doesn't mean that that information won't affect the person's choice about how many stars to give it. If you go meet Anne Rice and she turns out to be a jerk, you're not allowed to say Anne Rice is a jerk in your Goodreads review and give the book one star, but you can still give the book one star. You mm -hmm. can still take that action that the author perceives as meaningful about um, a consumer's response to their book and what they tell the world about it. I think maybe Anne Rice just doesn't understand the internet well enough and this is it's yeah, frustrating it's a nice it's a nice uh, condition like, in which both sides are 
kind of wrong. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. People are jerks online. Um, it's, I think, an unfortunate reality that part of having a presence on the internet is getting used to the fact that people are jerks and they'll be jerks to you. And the only thing that you can control is that you block them or choose to ignore them. Um, and we can talk about, and, and we should talk about the value of fighting back against people who behave that way or creating conversations that point out behavior that's inappropriate um, online so that hopefully community standards improve over time and there are fewer jerks. Uh, but a mm -hmm. petition to Amazon to remove anonymity, I don't think is going to solve the problem um, because the author is just so far removed from it. Anybody who really wants to say a terrible thing about Anne Rice is probably going to say it even with their name attached because they're never going to see Anne Rice in person. They can, sure. it's, it's depersonalizing too. Like they don't have to think about Anne Rice as a real human being because she's several computer screens away connected by a series of tubes, you know, it's just, um, so yeah. distancing. Yeah. So, you know, and this leads us to, um, another, I guess it's not even orthogonal. This is related to mm -hmm. the same problem. Um, the site Dear Author, and I can't remember who wrote this over, uh, Sunita over at Dear Author, wrote a really interesting piece about pricing. And the there's kind of a price point where a lot of traditionally published ebooks and self-published ebooks are colliding. And that's right around the $3.99 range. Mm -hmm. um, many traditionally published books, especially front list, are $7.99 and up. And that's really way more than your typical self-published book is, which is sort of 99 cents to 4.99 um, in that range. But at, so at 3.99, there seems to be some confusion uh, on buyers' parts, or at least potential for confusion, because the pricing doesn't give you a good signal about what you're getting. Right. Um, and then if you combine that with a weird phenomenon um, that she talks about here, which is um, that sometimes the ratings of the books are also not a good indicator. So you have something like Harry Potter, which gets like 94% four to five star reviews. Uh, and then other famous books like Ender's Game and Ready Player One, 90, 89%. And then there are self-published books that get similar levels of four and five star reviews. They just have many fewer of them. So you start to, there starts to be a blurring of the line of what the reader can really expect. Um, and the, the outcome of that is a kind of paralysis, I think, is kind of what she's arguing here, mm -hmm. is that at that point, you just sort of, it's a stay away number. <laughs> like, you either go way up and make sure you're getting a traditionally published book, or at least you're sure that's what you're getting for that price, or you go down to know that you're more in the self-published area. Um, I, if you're interested in this kind of thing, the whole thing is worth a read. It's, it's meticulously considered... Um, and really well done. And I wonder, and, what do you think about this particular story? Anything jump out at you for this one? You know, I think it's interesting that she's um, Sunita here. And if you have not discovered DearAuthor.com, um, they do consistently awesome work. They're great with numbers. They're not afraid to talk about um, some of the more controversial and difficult to parse things in publishing. So um, we love them and highly recommend that you check out DearAuthor.com. They're also really good with romance, well. too. That's the yeah, like main genre, but also like this higher level publisher yeah, stuff. They're awesome. At. They're great. Um, at least one of the writers there is a lawyer as well. So when there are interesting legal type things that come up in public, 
publishing. Um, she weighs in with smart and interesting information. Um, so definitely worth taking a look at. Um, the things that stood out to me about this piece are um, sort of the argument that when you're going, say, to Amazon to buy a book, um, you have two main data points to help you decide mm -hmm. if that's a book that you want to read. And one is, what's the price? And do I want to pay that price? And then the other is, what are the reviews? Um, how, you know, how many stars does this thing have? And so I guess if you're looking at two books that are both $3.99 and one has mostly five-star reviews and the other has mostly three-star reviews, you know which one to get. Mm -hmm. um, but if the reviews start becoming less meaningful because of things like the book came with a torn cover, so I gave it one star, right. yep. or like the stuff that we were just talking about with Goodreads, then you lose that data point. The review becomes less meaningful. And so you start comparing books just solely based on price point, um, which doesn't actually say anything about the quality of a book, but it, I think we perceive that the price of a book um, reflects its quality in some ways, or it's yeah. possible that, that or, we could perceive origin. that. Origin, right. right? I mean, in this case, it's traditionally published versus self-published. And we have, I think, um, as we talked a little bit, I think we talked about with Amanda and how some prize-winning books actually see their average reviews go down. Mm -hmm. People have higher expectations, and they will rate it harsher than if you have lower expectations. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this. Like, it would be cool to design some sort of study where you had a bunch of people read the same book, but told one group it was self-published in 99 cents, and told the second group it was from Random House, and it was a uh, fourteen ninety-five paperback, mm -hmm. and then asked them to rate it. It would matter, right? Don't you I think, think? I think it would. Because um, it's a lower bar. So like, hey, right. that's not bad versus, well, I mean, it was okay. Like, I mean, right. I think how good does it have to be for you to feel satisfied at 99 cents versus how good does it have to be for you to feel satisfied at fourteen ninety nine? Right. Um, yeah, and we're seeing a lot of experimentation with price. And I think this is things people are trying to figure out, frankly. What if all books were the same price? Well, for what I read, they sort of effectively are, I have to admit, mm. right? I mean, I read front, I mean, I read traditionally published ebooks mostly. And unless I get something on super sale, like I see it for 2.99 or something, they tend to be around 10 bucks. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm not I wonder, do you I mean, we're weird cases cuz we <laughs> review copies and all yeah, sorts of stuff. Yeah, we're super weird cases. Um, but that, you know, if you want to email us and say, "Do you buy books all the way up and down the price spectrum so from say like 99 cent self-published books all the way up to sort of $34 with tax hardcovers um, from your indie bookstore?" I, I, that's another study I'd like to see too. Like, do people s do their book buying around certain price, price targets, points. or are they more fluid, or yeah. how do those things I mean, work? Just, we, yeah. just, we just need so much data. We Rebecca. do. We need the juicy data. Um, I, I mean, anecdotally, I'm sort of all over that scale. Like, uh, I'm reading "Thinking Fast and Slow" by uh, Daniel Kahneman. I've been reading it for like five months. <laughs> 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 so you've been you've been taking the thinking slow part, that, right? I've been doing it slowly. Uh, it's great, but I've been you know contemplating it. But I think I bought it when it was uh, on sale for it was on an ebook sale for two ninety nine. Um, but mm -hmm. if I had come across it at a different point and been interested in it, like in a bookstore, I would have probably bought the paperback for fifteen ninety nine. Right. But I'm, I so the know, price for you there is like more of a catalyst than yeah, a decision. But you know. I know that when a new like oh, you and Amanda talked about Grasshopper Jungle a mm -hmm. couple weeks ago on the show, and um, I wanted to read it immediately, and so I went um, 
to the Kobo store and I looked and it's, uh, I think it's a YA new release and the ebook was more than 10 bucks. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, but everyone that I know who's read this book has <laughs> loved it. So I'm pretty guaranteed to get satisfaction for my $10. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, interesting. But with, um, with stuff that I'm experimenting with, like with reading more romance and doing a lot of that in Oyster, where I just pay $9.99 a month to read whatever I want from the giant buffet there. And I'm doing... Uh, less actual buying of sort of the experimental books in my reading life, which is just me, but I am more likely to pay um, 25 bucks for a new Marilyn Robinson hardcover because I know that I'm going to love the new Mar Marilyn Robinson hardcover or that right. at least there's a really good chance that I will up against... Um, or it becomes or, its own like thing, right? Like, right, you know, up against like an author or a genre that I don't know much about. Yeah, I want my right. experiments to be cheap. Yeah, I... Hey, I think that fail uh, often and cheaply. Mm -hmm. um, so, all right, I can't. I don't have a transition. I'm trying to think of what I, I, <laughs> I just, don't I'm either. Just this is, there's just a lot of interesting stuff in this dear author yeah. piece. Yeah, so um, go check that out if this kind of things interests you. Yeah. Um, I think we've come to the thing I'm most interested in this week. Tell me, Jeff. Um, this is a new. I guess it's an app or a technology. I'm not even sure what it is yet. Yeah, uh, they're calling it an app. Yeah, it's called. Um, Spritz, which is a terrible, terrible name. <laughs> but it's a new way of reading, which basically it only shows you one word at a time, but in rapid it's, succession and yeah. using a, I guess it would be kind of a heuristic that your eyes use when you actually are reading sentence to sentence to look at, they've kind of figured out for each word what is the letter in that word that you is the key to figure it out. So if you mm -hmm. go to that letter in the word first, you can read the words faster, and then they can present the words faster. I'm doing a horrible yeah, job so here. Yeah, so it's, it's an app that's coming to the Samsung Galaxy S5 and to the new Samsung Gear 2 watch. Watch. Which, you know, smartwatches are a thing to keep That's your coming up. Eye yeah, we're going to watch for those, yeah. But it's designed to help you become a speed reader. Um, typical college-level readers read at a pace of 200 to 400 words a minute, and Spritz says that um, it can get you up to a pace of 1,000 words a minute. Um, so you can start at um, 250, which, you know, is a, kind of right in the middle of a typical reader's reading speed. And then you can amp up the speed with which it shows you the words. And it shows you one word at a time with one letter highlighted, as you were saying, um, based around whatever magical thing they know about <laughs> where our eyes should go to help us read a thing. Um, and so, of course, like the hook is you could soon read all 309, 309 pages of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in 77 minutes. Yeah, that's uh, kind of the hook. And this, um, it's, this is the article in the Huffington Post. And you can see just by the social sharing numbers that this thing has gone like wildfire, like mm -hmm. 61,000 Facebook likes. Like it showed up in my own Facebook feed several times yeah, from yeah, people sharing it around. I've um, seen this a bunch too. So. The, the commentary, I've seen it in just in passing, is people are like, well, you know, how much are you going to really understand if you read that fast? And, you know, I want to read slow and blah, blah, blah. And I guess there's something to say to that, but I don't think that's the most interesting part. And I think the most interesting part to this is what you said at the beginning is you could read on your watch this mm -hmm. way. Um, because as much as anything, it's about you only need one word at a time real estate on a digital device. Like, Because right. this is something I've been thinking about with, you know, I do think wearable computing is a big part of the future, and I have no way of knowing if that's going to be your watch or your glasses or what. But all of them, I think, do not have giant screens that are useful for reading a book or an mm -hmm. article or anything right. on them. 
But if there was one little text box in the bottom of your Google Glass, basically field division that you could turn on and let it go, that is kind of amazing, I have to say. Yeah, this is the only way I'm ever going to wear a watch again, I think. like Right, I, if you could just turn it on and like hit start and you're reading the news. Oh, or a, right. like I wouldn't read a novel this way, I don't think, but like a nonfiction book, I totally would. For sure, yeah. I know we both lean heavy nonfiction in our audiobook right. listening, and I would go that way for this. Um, you know, learn a bunch of new stuff by sitting there looking at your watch while you're waiting at the doctor's office or mm -hmm. wherever it is that you're waiting to do a thing. It would be, I think that that's pretty cool. Um, the conversation around this has been really interesting because it, I think when we talked about it on the book riot Facebook page, we got, a, you know, predictably, I think a lot of people like, but the value of reading is in reading <laughs> slow and savoring every word. It's not, a, which, it's not a bug. It's a feature that you right, can't read which, fast. You know, part of, sure that's part of the reading experience is that like all those bits around preparing to do it, you know, like getting into your cozy chair and putting your blanket on your lap and making your tea and then settling in and like savoring the language. And there's, there's certainly books where you want to do that as a reader. Um, but a lot of the objections are built around also the assumption of like, well, if you read that fast, you wouldn't be able to appreciate the language or you wouldn't be able to really comprehend the information. And Spritz is at least saying that in their studies um, around getting people to read faster, they've tested comprehension and that it maintains or improves. Mm. So if that's true, and we yeah, don't have, I, mean, I mean, we don't know how they've we don't done know. this. We'll we can't, see. we don't have methodology corner for right. their, yeah. uh, shockingly, their study says it's all fine. <laughs> right. I know you're all surprised uh, about that. But you know what, if that's true, then, uh, snobs can, uh, yeah. well, I was about to curse. I will not curse. Yeah. Um, they can go sit in the corner and think the, about what they've done. Right. Um, this would be like, if you could read a Harry Potter book in 77 minutes and comprehend it at least as well as you would comprehend it reading it, um, you know, one page at a time rather than one word at a time, then why the heck wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, if that's what you want, and again, some of these things are going to be aesthetic. Like you may not in you may only enjoy it for certain kinds of reading, other kinds of readings, you know, you want your cup of tea and your blanket and mm -hmm. you kind of go slow. And you know what? Great. You yeah, can do it fine. that way. That's fine. I'm that's probably fine. never going to read James Salter, you know, on a right. flashing screen on my watch. Exactly. Exactly. But you know what? I might read um, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire like this, which is a huge book and it's going to take me forever to read it other ways. If you could, if I could cut my reading time in a third and I can fill and use it on these other devices that don't give me a good reading option... I think that's cool. So we're going to drop a link to the show notes. I think, so they have three reading speeds that are sort of on a loop that you can try, 250 words per minute, 350 words a minute, and 500 words a minute. And I have to admit, it took me like just letting my eyes adjust, but the 500 words a minute one, I found very comfortable. Yeah, if they were on different pages of the post, yeah, right. it would be easier. It's like three flashing things all right next to well, each you can other. Kinda, which... if you, I did this. I tried to size my window just around mm. one at a time, so mm -hmm. that gives you a little better sense. Oh, but, that's uh, smart. Um, yeah, take a look. I think, you know, it, does it say when it's coming out? It doesn't actually well, say. Well, the, the new Samsung things are going to come out this summer, I think. So Yeah, but if you've got a Samsung Galaxy s5 or really if you're going to get one of the samsung watches when you when you get it please test mm -hmm. this thing please test spritz and let us know i think i w i haven't thought of myself in the market for a smartwatch, but um if it does like if one did a good pedometer and it had something like this and that maybe integrated with my pocket account where i could save stuff to read mm. 
you know, and these are like internet articles, which I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to most of the time savor something I just saved from Huffington Post, no offense yeah. to Huffington Post, um, that, you know, this would be kind of an interesting uh, if it would, use for that. And like if my smartwatch would Bluetooth to the little speakers in my kitchen so I could play yeah. an audiobook or um, it would read. Oh, man, if this watch would read me a recipe like <laughs> one step at a time. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one. Um, that is an interesting case, a cookbook that has like intervals built into it where you could just say stop, start. Yeah, um, like, and read you know, fold the eggs into the flour and sugar mixture and yeah. you say stop and then you fold them and then you say start again or next step or something like I would, I would love that because I'm terrible about like propping up my <laughs> iPad in the kitchen or even like dragging my laptop to the kitchen counter and looking at recipes and then right. just deciding that I don't care what the recipe says. <laughs> right. If something were in the kitchen just reading to me telling me how to make this new thing that I've never made before. I think there's just tons of possibilities. I like the future, Jeff. Yeah, and I think I, I, I butchered it like the fatted calf and describing it, which it's hard to describe. But you definitely, if you're interested at all, you should go check out the post in the show notes or probably just Googling yeah, Spritz, S-P-R-I-T-Z, Spritz Reading, you can find yeah. it because you really need to see it in action and give yourself you know, a minute to sort of let your face acclimate <laughs> because it's, it's a weird, it's, a, it's kind of an odd sensation to watch it happening. But I found myself uh, sort of, wading into it pretty pretty readily. Let's talk about other new technology stuff, and this time it's going to be a sponsor. Yeah, this uh, this week's show is sponsored by the Twitter Fiction Festival, which is a global digital storytelling extravaganza that gives writers the new medium of Twitter to explore their fiction, while also offering readers the opportunity um, to read and interact with fiction in a totally different way. Uh, you can follow the hashtag Twitter Fiction, uh, which they consider to be defined as the use of tweets to convey a fictional idea, narrative, or visual art. And so that can be crowdsourced narratives, parody accounts count as Twitter fiction, uh, multiple character stories. You can tell uh, tales on video using Vine. There are 20 authors um, who are participating in this year's Twitter fiction festival from across the publishing industry, including uh, the New York Times bestsellers and award-winning authors like Alexander McCall Smith, uh, Megan Abbott, who is a great uh, noir and thriller writer that I love, Brad Meltzer, also Book Riot's own Eric Smith, mm -hmm. who uh, wrote a great book called The Geek's Guide to Dating and has just sold a YA series will be participating. And uh, so you can check them out under the Twitter fiction hashtag. The festival is also going to feature 20 winners from a fiction contest. Uh, so hopefuls shared, uh, hundreds of hopefuls shared submissions to Twitter fiction and a panel of top executives from publishing selected a group of them to join the showcase. Um, and also you can participate. Anyone on Twitter can jump in using the Twitter fiction hashtag um, or stream the whole thing using uh, twitterfictionfestival.com. You can tweet to them at TWFiction fest uh when is this thing my notes don't say when this oh, thing is uh, happening. march 12th 7 p.m march 12th at 7 p.m is when it kicks off and they'll be going i think for five days 7 p.m eastern yeah um yeah so you, yeah people will tell stories online i know a couple authors have been registering twitter accounts for multiple characters from their stories mm -hmm. so you're gonna get to see like fictional characters talk to each other um yeah, it's, it, it, it's cool. March 12, 7 p.m. Eastern. You can follow the hashtag Twitter Fiction Festival Live. Also, go to twitterfictionfestival.com. It'll be streaming there. They're also going to be tickets for the New York City live audience if you're interested in that. Those right. are on sale now for 15 bucks. 
at twitterfictionfestival.eventbrite.com and include a drink with your purchase price. Um, I guess either a beer or a glass of wine from mm-hmm. Six Point Brewery and Dark Horse Wine. So that's pretty cool. So thanks yeah. so much to the Twitter Fiction Festival and, for uh, If you want to participate, show. but you don't really know what you would do to participate in the Twitter Fiction Festival, you can go to twitterfictionfestival.com and use their Twitter Fiction Generator, which is kind of like a Mad Libs oh, I like situation. That. Yeah, I think it's really creative. Um, Random House is sponsoring this this year. A bunch of publishers have gotten on board and you know, authors from all over the industry are participating. Um, I'm, I think they've been doing it for a couple of years. I think this is the first year I'm really going to be watching it. It feels like they have a handle on how this thing works now. Yeah, it's it's a tough thing to wrangle, but they look like they've they've got the uh, the the doggies into the pen here a little bit. Um, new books. It's a good week. It is such a good week for new books. Um, I'm the two that we're going to talk about that I have on the list, at least are books that I'm in the middle of right now. Both of them um, came out this week. So by the time that you hear the show, they will definitely be available in your at your book retailer of choice. The first is Boy Snow Bird by Helen Oyeyemi. Uh, it is a retelling of Snow White set in, uh, begins in New York City in the 50s. Um, but it's sort of a twist on the evil stepmother story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Boy Novak is the main character. She's a a blonde white woman who runs away from her evil father, who is a rat catcher in New York. Um, She finds herself in this, you know, very idyllic small town. She falls in love with a man. They get married. And uh, when she has their first child, the child is born and is black. Um, And, it turns out that her husband's family has been passing as white in this small town, um, but they have black ancestry. And so mm-hmm. th- it's a story about race, uh, family, motherhood, this issue of passing. Uh, there's, it's a lot about beauty um, and sort of the dark and bothersome sides of how we consider beauty and how we treat beautiful people um, or how we treat ugly people as well. I'm about halfway through it. I'm four and- pages into it. <laughs> I just started it myself <laughs> a couple days ago it's, and haven't had much time to get into yeah, it. Yeah, I, st- I think I started it earlier this week after Amanda from yep, Book Riot yeah, listed it as her best read of the month last month. Um, it's like everything I can do not to underline every other sentence. <laughs> It's a beautifully it's, written book. It definitely is, even it's from what really, I've seen so far. Yeah, it's really, really gorgeous. Uh, Oyayemi has done something here. Um, and there are great little nuggets or, or breadcrumbs of other uh, fairy tale references throughout the story. Uh, it's not just a straight Snow White retelling. She really, uh, you can tell, had fun and put a lot of thought into the language of the book. Uh, it's... It is, it's an accomplishment, and I can't wait to finish it. Um, the other one that's new this week is a new collection of short stories called Redeployment by Phil Clay. Um, each story in the collection presents a different character and a different experience from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is like also right in my wheelhouse. I love uh, war fiction, which is a thing that I never thought I would be a passionate reader of but mm-hmm. these are these are incredible um last year was it last year 2012 saw a bunch of really great fiction about the right. wars in iraq and yep. afghanistan with billy, billy lynn, lynn and uh, fobbit and the yellow birds yep. uh, this is another entry into uh into exploring the fiction of more of the modern wars it is just heartbreaking and wonderful um there's a story 
about a character who works for mortuary services, whose job it is to clean up and collect the bodies of Marines after combat. Uh, there's uh, the, the opening story is a man returning home from deployment and just what that adjustment is like coming back to mm. his wife after months away and what his uh, fellow soldiers encounter as they return from combat. Um, I'm also just about halfway through that, but um, Clay has, uh, you know, not just presented one perspective, but a bunch of different possible experiences and perspectives. Um, every character in the book or every uh, short story is about a different kind of experience of the war, and they are all uh, smart, carefully written. They're sharp. Um, you know, I think doing war fiction that has a voice and a point and is critical about politics and war and the way that we engage in war, like these characters come home and encounter people who thank them for their service because that's like the thing that you're supposed to say, right. um, but who don't really comprehend what the effect of that statement is on the people that they're speaking to. Um, Clay really gets into that and he's very pointed without ever being preachy or pedantic. And that's not an easy thing to do no. to be, you know, really critical, um, but in a very engaging way and man it's just killer it's so I mean, which is maybe not the most excellent word i was, gonna, I was, gonna, I was <laughs> gonna buy my tongue there but you, you didn't let it go it's really great um redeployment by phil clay i think also maybe if you haven't read much war fiction but you think you might want to try it short stories are a good way to do that yeah that's a good point that's and a there's nice good point. stuff in paperback this week jeff uh you know i'm surprised uh, Tampa hadn't been out in paperback before. It feels like we've been talking about this book, or at least it's been out there forever. Yeah, but it's we finally were, available in paperback. Right, yeah, Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. I think it's because we were talking about it for like months before it came out mm -hmm. um, also, but it's about a, a woman who's in her late 20s. She's a middle school teacher, and she's chosen that job because she is particularly attracted to adolescent boys right in that like awkward, disgusting phase between being boys and being uh, grown men, like all so the stuff. So right when we're before that, you're just awkward. And after that, you're just disgusting. But <laughs> right in that, right in I that mean, middle place, you're awkward like, and disgusting. I am not kidding. My notes from when I read it say basically like all of the things that make teenage boys disgusting are the things that turn this character on. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Um, it's de it's a totally uncomfortable read. I thought it was really good. If you can go there, I know you don't have any interest in going no, there. No, no, no shot. There's just no way. No, there's like a big uh, biohazard warning on this one for me. Yeah, uh, it's out in paperback. It has a really fantastic cover. Cover's amazing. Let's not spoil it. Yeah, go, go look. look at it. Go look. Go look up the cover for uh, Tampa, Tampa by Lisa Nutting. Um, yeah. And the last one is uh, Equilateral by Ken Kalfas is out in paperback this week. Um, I talked about this, I think, at the very end of the year or early, yeah, you did. early part one of, of this year. One of our wrap-up shows or something, maybe, yeah, or end-of-the-year um, shows. From our dear friend Jen Northington turned me on to this book. It's so weird and great. It's about a scientist in the, I think it's late 1800s, um, who believes that he has calculated like the day at which uh, Mars and Earth will be ideally aligned for the society that he is now certain uh, certain lives on Mars to be able to see Earth and to recognize um, that there are intelligent beings on Earth as well. And the way that we're going to communicate that there are intelligent beings on Earth is by building a giant equilateral triangle that's like hundreds of miles long on each side uh, in the desert and setting it on fire. 
When in doubt, set it on fire. That's what I always say. <laughs> and the project is behind in the way of giant uh, projects like this. The government sponsors from several countries are angry. <laughs> the guy who's running it is sick a lot of the time and delirious, is maybe having affairs with some of the women that run mm -hmm. the camp. Um, it's just so kooky and really fantastic and fun. Uh, it's kind of a hard one to pitch, but I think if you... It, if you I haven't read this. Uh, you're a Tom Robbins fan. Is that right? Have you read Tom Robbins? I don't remember if no, we talked about this. No, I haven't. Also, it I sounds, can never it tell sounds like a Tom, Tom Robbins Wolf. novel. Anyway, I, it, was, it, it sounds like a Tom Robbins novel. Yeah. I'm going to read this at some point. I don't it's know a that. hard one to pitch. Um, yeah. But if you, you know, if you can like read a sample of it online somewhere, maybe, or pick up the paperback, I think if you can get 25 pages into Equilateral, you'll be sold. It's terrific. Cool. And All right. Those are new books, and that's our show. And the new books are going to start to get crazy here. Like they we're coming are, yeah. into we're... the spring, early summer time. Yeah, March, I was looking April. at the uh, upcoming books, and there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out. It's going to be good times. Well, that's our show. As always, you can email us with whatever you want to say. Um, if it can be helpful or nice, that would be especially welcome. Uh, podcast at bookwrite.com. And they've all been, I should say. Uh, you can oh, rate yeah. the show on iTunes. Um, that's a great way to help other people find the show. Uh, you can find Book Riot at bookriot.com, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. Like we said, we're all over those places. I'm at Reading Ape on Twitter. She's at Rebecca Shinsky on Twitter, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Um, I think that's pretty much all we're trying to say right now. We have our other book, another podcast at bookriot.com is hosting with our good friend Rita Mead, who's a librarian here in Brooklyn, who's great and funny and smart. And um, that's running bi-weekly. It's an advice show about life, love, literature, book etiquette, things like that. You were the host for the first two episodes. Mm -hmm. I was the second, the, uh, what do we call this? Co-host is the word I'm looking for, for the second two episodes. Um, and those are all available. Dear Book Nerd, you can search for them on iTunes or on bookriot.com. And she has her first non-Book Riot person guest coming next week. And it's going to be all excited great. for that. Yeah. And you can uh, find show notes always bookriot.com slash podcast. And thanks to our sponsors this week, Audible and the Twitter Fiction Festival. All right, Rebecca, that sounds like a show. We will talk to you guys later.